Hey, welcome to the podcast of C3 Los Angeles. I'm Jake Sweetman, and together with my wife, Nicole, we lead this church. We're glad you're here, and we pray that wherever you're tuning in from, that you are encouraged and strengthened by this word. Here's today's message. Today, we're going to be looking at the spiritual discipline of prayer. The title of the message is called Talking with God. I want you to write that down, and I want you to jot down some notes as we travel together throughout the message. Um, because I do believe that there's going to be some things that we look at that are going to be very helpful to you uh, and your prayer life. Henry Nouwen, who was, uh, I believe, a Catholic theologian, makes this great statement. He said, a spiritual life without prayer is like the gospel without Christ. A spiritual life without prayer is like the gospel without Christ. In other words, you cannot have a spiritual life without prayer. Just like you cannot have the good news, you cannot have the gospel without Jesus, so you also cannot expect to have a spiritual life without prayer. So if you want to have a spiritual life and you do not determine to become a praying person, then guess what? You will never actually have a spiritual life. And so we're going to talk about prayer today, and it's going to be really powerful. And I believe that um, a life of prayer has the power to change your life. I believe it not just because the scripture promises it, but because I have actually experienced it. And I want to begin by just recalling uh, a major point that we made in the first week of this series just a couple of weeks ago. This whole idea that the only reason we can experience God at all is because God wants us to experience him. So we worship a God who is transcendent. Everybody say transcendent. Transcendent is just a fancy word that means that God cannot be contained by space, by time, by matter. In other words, God would not be able to be experienced by our senses if he did not want to be experienced by our senses. He's beyond anything that we can sense. And so that means that the only reason we can sense him, the only reason we can experience God is because God wants us to be able to experience him. He made a choice. He determined that I am going to create humans and I'm going to allow them to experience a relationship with me. Now the same is true of prayer. The only reason you can pray is because God wants you to be able to pray. I don't know if you know this, but if God didn't want you to be able to pray, then prayer would be impossible. But because God desires that you pray, because God desires to hear from you and to speak to you, you have the ability to pray. In other words, every time you pray, you're participating in a miracle. And so that ought to motivate us and inspire us to be prayerful people. We're going to read from uh, Luke chapter 11, the gospel of Luke 11, verses 1 to 10, which is a great passage that pulls a bunch of New Testament teachings about prayer together, and we're going to look at those today. Luke 11, beginning in verse 1, says this, Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John, that is John the Baptist, taught his disciples. And Jesus said to them, When you pray, say, Father. Hallowed be your name, or let your name be kept holy and revered and honored. Your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread. So this is an abbreviated version of the Lord's Prayer compared to the one that you'd find in the Gospel of Matthew. And forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. And Jesus said to them, which of you, so he's now launching into a story to further illustrate the importance of prayer for the Christian. Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, 
friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut. It's midnight. Go away. My children are with me in bed. In those days, uh, if you were at a certain socioeconomic level, you lived in a house that was made up of just one room, and you and your whole family are in that one room, and you all slept in that room, and you ate in that room, and you hung out in that room, and you only had one bed in that room, and so they're all there in the bed together. And this guy on the inside is like, it's midnight, my kids are with me in bed, if I get up and get you these three loaves of bread, I'm going to wake that up, uh, wake them up, and I don't know if you have young children, but it's never worth waking young children up out of their sleep. Uh, if they are asleep, that is also a miracle, and you should participate in the miracle by leaving them alone. I have young children, so I know. Do not bother me. The door is now shut. My children are with me in bed. I cannot, cannot get up and give you anything. Now, one point here that I want to make is that when Jesus tells a parable, the point of a parable is to illustrate a truth. Uh, and it's usually to illustrate a singular truth. He's making a single point. So Jesus' point here is not to demonstrate to us the character of God by looking at the resistance of this guy to get out of bed. He's not saying, hey, when you pray, God's a little bit like this guy who can't really be bothered answering the door. That's not what he's saying. What Jesus is teaching us about in this parable is how we need to be persistent in our praying. And that's why Jesus goes on and says, I tell you, this is the lesson, though he will not get up and give him anything because he's his friend. In other words, it's not just relationship. Yet because of his impudence, that is his persistence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. This story, this moment, is an amazing moment in the life of Jesus. Because it begins by his disciples, his twelve, coming to him and making a request. And the request they make of him is, Lord, would you teach us how to pray? Of all the things that they could have asked Jesus to teach them, this one to me is very fascinating. If you had been following Jesus for six months, a year, two years, and you'd seen the miracles that Jesus had done, I think you would be inclined to ask for different things than just, Lord, teach me how to pray. If it were me, I would say, Lord, teach me how to heal the sick. Lord, I saw you take that guy with the crippled hand and he stretched it out and his hand was made whole. How did you do that? Lord, teach me how to do that. Lord, let's talk about this water walking thing because I would love to learn how to walk on the water. The bread multiplying, the fish multiplying. There are a whole bunch of things that would qualify as very high on the list for what I would ask Jesus to teach me how to do. And yet the disciples come to him and say, Lord, teach us how to pray. And quite clearly, the reason the disciples want Jesus to teach them how to pray is because they understand that Jesus' private prayer life is the foundation. It is the basis out of which all of his public ministry, all of his living for God, all of his serving of other people grows. It all comes back to the fact that Jesus was a praying person. And if the Son of God determined that he would be a praying person, then you and I are absolutely hopeless if we do not also determine to be prayerful people. And so Jesus begins to teach them. And obviously he does. He knows that eventually he's going to go. He's going to ascend to the Father in heaven. He's going to send the disciples out. They're going to build the church. They're going to go into the Roman Empire. They're going to preach the gospel. And they need to know how to be prayerful people. If they are not prayerful people, then they will not succeed in their mission. But if they are prayerful people, then they will succeed in the mission that Jesus is giving to them. 
Not only that, but it'll also transform them from the inside out so that they won't be broken people trying to reach a broken world. A life of prayer will change your life. A life of prayer will help heal your life. So if you want to have any hope of healing a broken world, then you need to be a son and a daughter of God who meets with him in the secret place and finds the healing that you are then commissioned to give. A life of prayer will change your life. I would write that one down. That would, so I want to look today at, at four things that Jesus talks about in this teaching that he gives to the disciples um, that will help you develop a life, a habit of prayer that will change your life and in turn impact the lives of the people in the city that God has called us to. The first point is this. Uh, when you pray, pray as a son. When you pray, pray as a son. And I recognize that by using those words, I am, in effect, separating men from women for a moment, and it feels like I'm ignoring one group in the room, but I'm not, and I'll get to why I've chosen that language in just a moment. But when you pray, pray as a son. Jesus, the first words out of his mouth to the disciples were this. When you pray, say, Father. When you pray, say, Father. So the first thing that Jesus taught to the disciples about what is important when you pray is understanding who it is you're praying to and who you are in relation to the one that you are praying to. When you pray, say, Father. And of course, you know, in the extended version of this prayer in Matthew, when you pray, say, Our Father. So in saying Our Father, we're understanding that I'm praying to God, and it's not just that He's a Father of somebody, but that He's my Father and He's your Father. So the very first teaching that Jesus gives to us about prayer is that we have to understand that when we pray, we're praying to our Father in heaven, and it is this relationship Relationship that gives rise to our praying in the first place. This invitation that Jesus gives to the disciples to call God Father uh, was a bit unusual. It's not that the, the Jews in that time didn't have any understanding of God as a Father. He's mentioned that way a couple of times in the Hebrew Scriptures, but it really wasn't their primary understanding of how to think about God and certainly not how to address God in their own personal prayer lives. And yet, it's how Jesus always addressed God. There's only one moment of prayer in the Gospels where Jesus doesn't call God Father, and it's when he's hanging on the cross and he quotes Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Every other time when Jesus prays, he always addresses God as his Father. And so because the disciples are asking Jesus to teach them how to pray in the way that Jesus prays, he says, the first thing that you have to know is that when you come to God, you're coming to him as your Father. The Aramaic word is Abba. Have you heard this word, Abba? Abba means dad. Some people want to say it means daddy. It doesn't actually translate to the term daddy. Please don't be that Christian who walks around calling God Daddy God. It's weird. It's just a bit odd. Just to get that out, out of the way. But it is a term of warmth. It is a term of intimacy. Uh, it is a term of endearment while also being honoring and, and respectful. In other words, it's not overly familiar. That's why the words that immediately follow Father are hallowed be your name. 
Let your name be kept holy. So it's not being overly familiar with God, but it is understanding that I'm coming to God as my Father. Now, the literal definition of the word aside, the point here is that Jesus is instructing us to pray in such a way that very clearly understands our relationship with Him, not as akin to a servant tentatively approaching their master or as a defendant fearfully taking their place before a judge, but as a kid confidently beginning a conversation with their dad. Again, we're talking about the transcendent God of the universe, the heavens and the earth. And Jesus says, this is how you ought to come to him as a child comes to their dad. The very first thing that Jesus teaches about prayer is not where to pray, not what time to pray, not that those things aren't important, but who it is that you and I are praying to. When you pray, say, Father, because we are his children. Now, why make the point specifically of uh, praying as a son? I think it's important for communicating what it meant to be a son in Jewish culture and in Roman culture in the time of Jesus. In the letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Galatia, Uh, He talks about this a little bit, and it's really powerful. Galatians chapter 4, verses 6 to 7, Paul says this. He says, because you are sons, and we're catching him here in the middle of an argument. He's making a theological argument about how you and I are sons of God. Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son, that is Jesus, into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And this is part of the point that in the scriptures, sonship equals heirship. To be a son means that you are an heir of the inheritance, an heir of, the, of whatever it is that the father possesses. And you and I have been made sons of God. That is our position before God. And not only have we been made sons of God, but we've received the spirit of the son of God. Now here's how inheritance worked. If you were the eldest born son, then you got the largest share of the inheritance. Usually you got double. But Jesus isn't just the eldest born son of God. The Bible says that he is the only begotten son of God. So Jesus being the only begotten son of God means that he inherits everything that the father has. That's what the Bible says. Everything the Father has has been given to me. Jesus said that. He's the only begotten Son of God. So he gets all of the inheritance. Now here's the good news for you and I, is that when we become Christians, we become something the Bible calls in Christ, which means that everything the Son inherits from the Father, you and I now in that position are always also inheriting from the Father. And so you are an heir of God, not like 50th in line, not like 100th in line, not 2 billionth in line, but you are an heir of God as though you were positioned in Christ Jesus himself. You are inheriting and receiving the very kingdom of God. That's what it means for you and I to be sons of God. We are his heirs. Romans 8, 15 and 16 says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Bible scholar F.F. Bruce says this, that the term adoption here may have a somewhat artificial sound in our ears. It might sound less than. But in the Roman world of the first century, an adopted son was a son deliberately chosen by his adoptive father to perpetuate his name and inherit his estate. He was not in the smallest degree inferior in status to a son born in the ordinary course of nature and might well enjoy the father's affection more fully 
worthily and reproduce the Father's character more worthily. Craig Keener, another great Bible scholar, says Roman adoption, which could take place at any age, meant that you had all your previous debts canceled, defining the new son wholly in terms of his new relationship to his father, whose heir he became. So by the grace of God, when you and I were positioned in Christ Jesus, all of our previous debt was canceled. We inherited his estate. We now perpetuate his name. We stand as his representatives in the earth. And that's the position from which you and I get to pray. That's what it means to pray as a son of God, whether you're male or female, young or old here today. It's the status that has been conferred upon you. Another way that you can say is that when you pray, you're praying within the context of covenant. Within the context of promise. Covenant is when two parties make an agreement with one another. And the covenant is, uh, is important because in that agreement, I am promising to uphold cert certain things and you are promising to uphold certain things. And we serve a God who is a God of covenant. He's a covenantal God. He makes covenants with his people. And so in the Old Testament, God makes a covenant with the nation of Israel. I will be your God. You will be my people. I will put you in this promised land. I will cause you to flourish. It's going to be great. Good deal. This is what you need to uphold and this is what I'm going to uphold. This is the Old Testament, uh, which means covenant, the Old Covenant. Now, God, how many know God was faithful to his side of the bargain? God never broke his covenant. God is faithful. We read that word about God in the Bible all the time. Whenever you read about God's faithfulness, it's not just saying that God is like generally arbitrarily faithful. Whenever you read in the Bible that God is a faithful God, it's always in connection to his covenant promises. He makes covenant promises and he is faithful to keep those covenant promises. Israel, on the other hand, they were bad boys and girls. They did not keep their covenant promises. They were very unfaithful and they got unfaithful pretty quickly and they participated in all kinds of wickedness. So in 580, 86 BC, the covenant broke. And we know that because they got kicked out of the promised land and they got exiled to Babylon. The covenant said that they would always be in the promised land, but now they're not in the promised land. They got exiled to Babylon. And there in Babylon, this guy named Jeremiah, he's got a book in your Old Testament. I recommend that you read it. Jeremiah stands up in the midst of Babylonian exile, in the midst of the old covenant having fallen apart. And he says this, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with my people. Fast forward another few hundred years. Jesus at the Last Supper says, this is my blood in which I make a covenant with you. This is the new covenant coming to pass, being solidified. And so God enters into covenant with his people again, except this time it's not just Jews, it's Jews and Gentiles forming one new people in the earth, the people of God. This is the covenant that God has with his church that you and I are participating in. And it's the context in which you and I come to God. It's the context in which we pray. This is very, very important because it means that when I say we come to God as a father, I don't mean that we're doing that because it sounds like a nice way to think about prayer. Coming to God as your father means that you're coming to him because you have entered into covenant with him. That you have been, God is not just your creator, God is your redeemer. 
And so you're his child, not just because he created you, you're his child because he actually redeemed you from sin. He redeemed you from darkness and brought you into the, the kingdom of God. He brought you into his family. If you think that you pray to God as your father merely on the basis of the fact that it sounds like a nicer way to think about prayer, then the next time you feel unworthy of being God's son or daughter, then you'll stop thinking about him as your father. It's not based upon your feelings. It's not based upon just because it sounds Sounds like a nice way to think about prayer. You come to God as your father because it is a biblical, theological truth and fact. It's what defines your relationship with him. Whether you feel worthy of it or not, whether you feel deserving of it or not, whether you feel like God's son or God's daughter or not, if you have entered into relationship with the son of God and believed in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, then you became God's child. And that is an unchangeable, indisputable fact about your life. And it characterizes is the way that you always get to come to him. We come to God as his kids, not because it's a nice idea, but because it's true. And this means that we can come with a great deal of confidence. You know, when you really know somebody, you confidently approach them. When you don't really know somebody, you don't really confidently approach them. A few years ago, well, a number of years ago, in my early 20s, I was working at the Apple store and uh, one day I'm working at the Apple Store, I'm out on the sales floor, and lo and behold, in walks Stevie Wonder. Stevie Wonder walks in with like his guards and his posse, and it's a whole thing, and, and you know, they're leading him around the store because he's blind. And I get to help Stevie Wonder in the Apple Store. And I'm with Stevie Wonder for like, literally no joke, somewhere between two and three hours, I'm helping Stevie Wonder around the Apple Store. And like, we're looking at iPhones and iPods and headphones and, 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 and Mac computers and the whole thing. By the end of this like, two, three hour period with Stevie Wonder, I feel like I know him. Like I'm, I'm feeling like Stevie and I are actually friends at this moment. I'm feeling quite close. Uh, I'm helping lead him around the Apple store. Like it's a very intimate experience with me and Stevie. And I feel like we're friends now, okay? And so that, that uh, experience comes to an end. He goes, he leaves the store. A couple of days later, we're celebrating my birthday, and we're uh, at Bottega Louie in downtown L.A. I don't know if Bottega Louie is still a popular restaurant. At the time, it was really popular, and it's a big restaurant. Like, there are probably 250 people sitting inside this restaurant on a Friday night eating dinner, and I'm there with a group of my friends, and towards the end of the meal, guess who walks into Bottega Louie? Stevie Wonder and his posse, except the posse is bigger this time, come walking into Bottega Louie and something overtakes me, but I see him and I just immediately begin to cry out in this crowded restaurant, Stevie! Stevie! People are staring at, I've lost my mind. Like, but I feel like I know him. And so then I kind of realize, oh, oh no. And so then I feel like I need to justify like what's going on. I go, no, 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 I know him. I know him. <laughs> and then I need Stevie to come to my rescue. So I'm like, Stevie, it's me, it's me. But he's blind, so he doesn't know who me is. But I felt really confident in coming to Stevie. I wonder if I felt more confident coming to Stevie than most of us feel in coming to God. But you honestly, you should be able to come to God with that same level of, I know him. But a lot of times we come to God like, ah, I kind of know who you are. Do you know me? Like, are we cool? No, you should come with God. I know you. You're my father. I'm your child. And this is the context of our relationship. And out of that, you can pray with confidence. What can I pray for? Anything. The father doesn't place any limitation upon what his children are allowed to request. Now, he might not give it to you, 
He's not obligated to fulfill every request that you bring to him. God's primary obligation in this covenant that he's made with you is to form you into the image of his son so that you can spend eternity with him. Now, if what you're asking for aids that process, that maybe he'll give it. If you feel like you can handle it without it becoming an idol in your life, then maybe he'll give it. It's his prerogative to give, but it's my prerogative to ask. And if he's invited me to ask, then friends and family, I'm going to be a son of God who asks for the desires of my heart and the needs of my life. Point number two, when you pray, pray simply. Jesus said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. I love that prayer that Jesus demonstrates here in the parable because it's so simple. It's such a simple request. And when you and I pray, we can pray simply. The alternative is that when we pray, we can pray word salad prayers. You know what a word salad is? You ever, you ever had anybody say a whole lot to you without saying anything all at the same time? A, a word salad is like when people really want to say the thing, you know, whatever the thing is, but they don't want to say the thing because they're afraid that the thing is going to offend you. And so instead of saying the thing, they say a whole bunch of other things that beat around the bush of the thing because they know if they just say the thing directly, it's going to hurt your feelings. And so they're hoping that if they say a whole bunch of other things that are kind of connected to the thing, that you'll figure out what the thing is and your feelings won't get hurt because they said it indirectly. That's a word salad. It doesn't help conversation. And it doesn't help relationship grow. So why would we think that we can come to God and offer up these word salad prayers? And God's like, I feel like we've really connected here. And of course, you don't feel like you're connecting with God because you're making him word salads. And God doesn't want your word salad. God wants you to pray simply and honestly to him. Uh, Matthew 6, 7, Jesus says, When you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. They think they're going to be heard for their word salads. Jesus says, don't pray like the Gentiles. Here, Gentiles are idol worshipers. They're pagans, people who did not worship the God of the heavens and the earth, the one true God. And Jesus says, when you pray, don't make the mistake of praying like them. Now, who did they pray to? They pray to well, a myriad of other gods and goddesses that are typically formed and fashioned in the likeness of a statue. So when they pray, they, they kneel or stand before statues and they pray to the statue. No wonder they start to heap up a bunch of empty phrases because they're praying to something without a brain. And typically the way you pray starts to reflect who it is that you think you're praying to. So if you're praying to some object without a mind, you're going to start to pray mindlessly. If on the other hand you understand that you are praying to the infinitely intelligent God of the universe, then you will pray in such a way that reflects that you understand that he knows what you're talking about. So you don't need the word salad. You can just pray simple, straight up, honest prayers. In other words, you can treat prayer like a conversation. Have you ever thought about prayer as a conversation? I grew up Pentecostal, in case you couldn't tell by the yelling preaching. And, and I always understood prayer as like fighting for something, right? Like it's like contending. And, and prayer is that, and I'll get to that in a moment. But it's also conversation. It's also just like going on a walk with God and talking to him about the things that are going on in your life. And I found that when I learned to pray that way, I started to deal more honestly with the things that I was anxious about and worried about and the things that I was afraid of because I wasn't just like making declarative statements in prayer. I was actually talking to God about problems. And this is one of the big mistakes that I think we make in prayer sometimes is that 
when we come to God in prayer, we only talk about the solution that we would prefer, but we don't ever actually talk about the problem that we're dealing with. And we wonder why we never stop feeling anxious about the problem is because we're just like pushing the problem down. It's like when you know you should take the trash out in the kitchen because it's like pretty full and honestly, you really should take it out because it's getting kind of stinky. But instead of taking it out, you just push it down even further. That's like avoiding a life of simple prayer. Just like get the garbage down. Anxiety, fear, worry, bitterness, animosity. I hate that person. Push, 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 push. I'm jealous of that person. Push, push, push. And all you really need to do is just pray honestly. God, this is what I'm feeling. This is, and we think we're going to hurt God's feelings. We think we're going to surprise him. Like you think you could go to God and pray about something that you're feeling and God's like, whoa, you think that? <laughs> he's, he's, he's not going to be surprised. He, he, Jesus says, um, he already knows what you need before you ask him. Do you really think that you could embarrass yourself by asking for something from the God who gives you everything? Just come and, and pray simply. Be conversational in your prayer. Take out the trash. Touch your neighbor. Tell him, take out the trash. Yeah, you ought to do it on a, on a daily basis. Because that stuff, like, compiles up pretty quick. The third point is this. When you pray, pray specifically. Um, which of you who has a friend won't go to him and say, friend, I need three loaves. I love that. Not, uh, I, I need something to eat. Not, I'll take what you can spare. How many of us come to God and we just feel so bad about asking in the first place, so we just say, God, whatever you got. Or, or like, we wouldn't say it like that. We'd couch it in more spiritual language. We'd be like, God, if I've been found worthy. Or, or God, if it be your will. No, no, just what's the need? What's going on? I need, I need three loaves. Uh, for a friend of mine has come and I have nothing to give him. That's also an honest part of prayer. I have, uh, a situation has arisen, God, and I'm not equipped to deal with it. How often do your prayers sound like that? Or again, do you just like, this is the solution I decree and declare in the name of Jesus? Great. I don't think God's impressed with all that, but carry on. But how about like, God, I made a mistake. <laughs> and I'm in this situation, or I wasn't prepared for this. And, and I need your help. And this is how I need your help. I, I need three loaves of bread. This is my need. This is what's come up in my life. It's praying specifically, and then it's being persistent. This is like contending kind of prayer. This is when you're trying to achieve something in prayer because you know the need and you're going after it. It's not just praying, it's praying and watching. And this is where prayer becomes fun. Like sometimes prayer isn't fun to us because we forget to even look for the things that we've been praying for. Because our prayer was really just like pointless, aimless small talk in the first place, right? And like in a human to human level, like small talk is never gonna produce the kind of close relationship that the Bible says should be true of your relationship with God. And so we gotta get beyond small talk and we gotta start like contending for some stuff, right? Like you don't do it all the time, but like you got a need, you need to come to God and pray for it. Uh, Jesus said in, in Luke twenty two thirty two about Peter, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. So Jesus is looking ahead to Peter's catastrophic failure when he's gonna deny that he even knew Jesus. And Jesus is like, I've been looking ahead to that 
that moment. And guess what, Peter? I've been praying for you. I've been contending. I've been doing battle with the devil in prayer for you that your faith would not fail and that you would be strengthened again and help lead your brothers here. That's contending in prayer. 2 Corinthians 1 verses 10 and 11. Paul says that God delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. On him we've set our hope that he'll deliver us again. You also, Corinthians, you church must help us by prayer. So Paul is saying that our deliverance is actually connected to the prayers of the church. I want you to contend for my safety. I want you to contend for my effectiveness in the mission field by praying for me. How about contending for your internal world? Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane said to the disciples, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Pray that you would be a person of purity. Pray that you would be a person who puts on the robe of righteousness that the Father has freely given to you. Have you ever gotten to the place where you got fed up enough with a habitual sin in your life that you were willing to pray and fast to see breakthrough in that area? If you haven't gotten to the place where you were willing to pray for inner freedom, then you have not yet understood that who you are on the inside is the most important thing about who you are. And if you don't get to the point where where you're not just willing to pray for the external needs and desires, but to pray for the internal desire, the internal need, then you have not understood how important it is that you get healed and freed on the inside. Don't limit your prayers just for the external stuff. Get desperate for, for who you want to become here. And of course, the power is that when you flourish here, usually flourish, flourishing externally follows closely behind. Praying specifically what is that thing that you're dealing with? Take it to God in prayer and, and get breakthrough. Overcome that. It's not your destiny to, to wear that chain for the rest of your life. Stop believing that. Stop thinking that you're going to go the next 10, 20, 30 years and this is how you're always going to be. Yeah, well, if you think it, you will. But if you get to the place where you go, God purchased my freedom and I'm willing to take this thing to prayer and get the freedom that God has purchased for me, then your life... A life of prayer is a changed life. If you believe it and start living like it, you will start to experience the life change that Jesus Christ purchased for you on the cross. It is not your destiny to be tripped up by the same sin again and again. I don't know who I'm preaching to right now, but some of you came to church wearing the shackles of guilt and shame, and you've convinced yourself that this is just the way it's always going to be in the name of Jesus. It's not. He has purchased your freedom. Get into that secret place of prayer and find the healing that he has you. Whatever the breakthrough is, whether it's internal or external, be persistent. God is not moved by need alone. God is moved by faith. And Jesus said, just because he's his friend doesn't mean he's going to get up out of bed. No, no. It's the persistence that God is looking for. Need becomes faith when you are persistent in bringing the need when you're bold and you're shameless and you don't care. Stop telling yourself that you shouldn't have the need in the first place. And so that's keeping you from praying. You have it. It's there. However it came about, it's there. And so start praying specifically to God about that and allow him to move in your life. I'll finish with this, um, this story in regards to praying specifically. How, how about we be a people who pray specifically for salvation? We're here uh, as a church in, in Los Angeles because we want to reach the people of L.A. 
And we believe that nobody is too far gone. We believe that nobody is too trapped in sin, that God's love cannot rescue them and bring them into his kingdom. So why don't we put our money where our mouth is and begin praying for that kind of breakthrough, begin praying for salvation in the lives of people. I was talking to uh, Pastor Michael Whittle. He's over in our Highland Park location this morning preaching. Uh, This week we were chatting, and he shared with me the most beautiful story. He got saved, uh, I think, when he was around 14 or so. And when he got saved, he started going to church. But for the first several months of going to church, he would only go to the Wednesday night gathering. That was where the youth would go. And so he would go to the Wednesday night gathering every single Wednesday night for several months. Well, after several months had passed, he's going to church regularly. He decides one day he's going to show up to church on Sunday morning. So he turns up to church one Sunday morning. He sits through the service. At the end of the service, he's leaving the auditorium. He's walking towards the bathroom. And as he's walking towards the bathroom, he hears this this voice behind him. It's a woman, and she calls out his name. She says, Michael. So Michael turns around, and he sees the face of this woman, and and the woman is his neighbor. And the woman's got tears coming down her cheeks. And Michael turns and looks at her. He's like, what's my neighbor doing here? And she says to him, for 10 years... Since you were a little boy, I've been watching you play in your front yard as I've done dishes in the kitchen looking out the window. And every time I've looked at you playing in your front yard, I've prayed for you that you would come to know the Lord. And so she's crying because here's her neighbor whom she's been contending for his salvation for a decade. His life gets transformed. Married beautiful kid, pastor in our church, because somebody contended for him. Someone prayed specifically. We all know people in our lives, co-workers, neighbors. We know their names. We know that they don't know God. We know that their eternity is, is not heaven. And so let's all come to the place where we go, God, I've got a need. And that need is not about me. That need is the salvation of this person and to be a people who pray for the salvation of our city. I'm not one of those bad news Christians. I love to study the culture. I love to know the ins and the outs. I love all of it. But I refuse to believe that we are down and out. I refuse to believe that the light has been snuffed out by the darkness. I'm going to be a person who believes that the kingdom of God It's still spreading like leaven through dough. It's still spreading all the way through the city, all the way through the nation, all the way through the world. There are many people that God has yet to reach, and he wants to use us to reach them. More specifically, he wants to use our prayers to reach them. Fourth and finally, and I'll make this really quick. When you pray, pray consistently. The disciples asked Jesus to teach them how to pray, not because they saw him pray one time, two or three times. They asked Jesus to teach them how to pray because they saw him regularly get away from the crowd and the noise to be by himself and to pray. Luke 18, 1 says, we ought always to pray and never lose heart. Paul picks up on this idea of consistent prayer in 1 Thessalonians. He says, pray without ceasing. In Colossians, he says, continue steadfastly in prayer. In Ephesians, he says, let us always pray with all prayer and all supplication. There's no doubt about it that the Christian life is made up of prayer as much as your life is made up of breathing. Or to put it in Henry Nouwen's words, that a spiritual life without prayer 
is like the gospel without Christ. You, you just can't have it. The most practical advice I know to give you, and maybe you want to write this down, for how to pray consistently is to pick a place and set a time. Pick a place and set a time. Maybe your place is strolling through your neighborhood. Maybe it's pacing in your living room. I know people who have felt so restricted in their options of where to pray that they carved out a little space in their closet and put a pillow down on the floor and knelt in that place, that little corner of their studio apartment closet, and they prayed because they understood that a life of prayer will change your life. What's your excuse? Set it on fire. Get rid of it. Become a person. Just pick a place and then set a time. When are you going to do it? When's most accessible for you to be able to do it? And when you pray, don't worry about how long you're going to pray for. Oh, I pray for an hour. Great. You don't need to worry about that. Don't worry about the duration. Just when you, when you do pray. pray. Pray as a son who's an heir of God. Pray really simple, honest prayers. Pray specifically and persistently. and Name your need. Name your struggle. Name what it is. And then just get going and don't quit. Pray consistently. You've been listening to the C3 Los Angeles podcast. If you found today's message helpful, we encourage you to share it with a friend and consider rating it. If you'd like more information about our church or details on how to get connected to a neighborhood group, head to c3losangeles.com. We love you. Thanks for tuning in with us.